Again, might we say, what a joyous privilege it is this afternoon to be able to come together. Those on our sick list that we have mentioned, certainly many of them would very much enjoy being able to be a part of our meeting this afternoon, but are not able to do so. And for that, we hope that their circumstances will soon be approved, that they will be able to enjoy a betterment in their health in the very near future. But indeed, cannot we be appreciative and so very grateful for the blessings that have been ours, at least in that regard. As you probably noted, as you looked at the bulletin this morning and saw the title for the lesson that I've selected for the evening, namely that of political duty, immediately the first word that's encountered, that adjective political, identifies a very concept and idea that in many ways presents itself in a difficult circumstance. In the sense that quite often it's viewed as that's not a proper and appropriate matter for the description to be utilized in terms of a lesson or a sermon. It's our duty, our privilege this afternoon to look into the Word of God and to more carefully think about issues like that one. And as we consider them, to ask in what way or perhaps not, if that's our proper conclusion, that the Bible does address matters related to politics. We each know that currently in our land, we are involved in the middle stages, if you will, of that process whereby a president is selected and it seems on virtually an annual basis some type of political work is done, be it on a local level, a state level, a federal level. Officials are elected and selected that will represent us in various ways. This evening, might we consider the concept of political duty and open the pages of the Word of God and search more carefully and interestingly some of those things that might be learned. I suspect we have all noted that two of the most controversial matters or subjects that can ever be raised are politics and religion. Quite often, no matter what the gathering or what the audience may be, the raising of one or the other or both of those issues will immediately arise and result in a disagreement, in a consideration in which there are various viewpoints Typically what makes it sufficiently difficult is that all of the viewpoints are typically considered to be equal in value. You and I know in terms of religion that that's not the case. Namely, that what God has declared and decreed stands far and above anything that men have devised and anything that men may set forth. Did not the God of heaven say in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 that his ways and his thoughts are far above ours? In fact, comparatively so, as the heaven is higher than the earth. And that's truly a giant chasm between the two realities, isn't it? Noting, though, this evening, it shall not be our intent to present a history lesson on the political system of the United States of America. That's not our interest. That's not our intent. In fact, I've listed it secondly on that screen. There are many different political systems that men have devised. We are most familiar with the one in America, and our children learn many different things in classes about that, but that's not the only kind of political system. There, of course, as I've listed, is that republic kind of system that we enjoy, but there are other countries who have a monarchy for a system. Others are fascist. Others are communist. Nowhere does the Bible endorse exclusively one of these over another. In fact, is it not easy to see in that last statement I've made in light of that fact, the Bible itself is not a political system. Nowhere does God, through His Word, endorse one to the exclusive nature of omitting all the others. 
In fact, those Christians to whom the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, they lived under the Roman monarchy. You and I do not live in such a system, and yet Paul never, by inspiration, encouraged them to try to overthrow the government and set up a republic variety. Never once did he encourage them to revolt and try to establish another variety of government. You see, God's principles are higher than those of this world, aren't they? They're higher in terms of appreciating the ultimate thrust of what life is all about. The second comment worthy to make is thus that this lesson is not intended to meddle personally in anyone's particular political viewpoints. Our only desire is to let God freely speak in His Word. And if that were to challenge me to make changes in my viewpoint, then that's what needs to happen. If that challenges me to make better decisions or to think about things in a different perspective, then that would, of course, be what God would wish. And maybe finally, our only interest is to consider the principles set forth in the Word of God. What are those principles that might be wisely utilized in the proper perspective on political duty and obligation? Might I submit that there are five points I wish us to consider. The first one is this one. In the consideration of what we have stated thus far, let's expound upon that and amplify it just a bit. Namely, this first point, God Himself is without political affiliation. God Himself is without political party. We have already hinted previously that this system of government that we currently enjoy is not universally appreciated and many other countries and individuals do not have such. Can they nonetheless live pleasingly before God? Certainly they can. May you and I do so in this country? Absolutely. But it's not because of or in spite of the political system. You see, God is without political arrangement. Some of the points to be seen. On that screen, God is uniformly in favor of righteousness. And it's immaterial what the specific human-devised government is under which that righteousness may, in fact, be appreciated. In Jeremiah 7, we read throughout the course of that chapter, especially through the first 28 verses, that God has a rather powerful dialogue with the people of Judah. In the days following the reign of Solomon, the kingdom was split. There came to be the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. That northern kingdom, shall we say, suffered beneath the reign of many ungodly and wicked kings. In the southern kingdom, they too had their fair share of the same, but there were some righteous, good kings. As the days of Jeremiah had come to be, the captivity was not far in their future. And God, through Jeremiah, said, This is a nation that obeyeth not God. Never once did he make mention of the type of government under which Israel was serving. The problem was, God said, I gave them my laws, I wrote them in such a way that they understood them, and yet they refused them. And hence his conclusion, this is a nation that obeyeth not God. What a sad description of any nation and of any people. Notice, in light of statements like that one, some of the other following ones are certainly fair. There are many political parties in our country. We are most familiar with the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, but there are dozens and dozens of others. There's the Labor Party, the Union Party, the Libertarian Party, and again, dozens of others that could still be mentioned. But as one considers each and every one of them, 
might we always remember that political parties are human inventions. Nowhere in the Bible is any of them mentioned. Nowhere is the Democratic Party described, the Republican Party, the Unitarian, the Libertarian. These are matters which humans have devised for the carrying out of the business associated with the government and the leadership of people. It's this entirely reasonable to conclude that since the Bible does not mention these, no political party can claim an exclusive monopoly on righteousness. No one of them can claim that God would vote our way and he would not vote yours. For again, no political party holds absolutely and precisely with every decree and ideology set forth by heaven. But that is not to say that some may uphold more closely and more nearly to that which God would endorse. In fact, is it not easy to see, perhaps finally, that as we are left to make those choices and the decisions, we shall find ourselves in need, basically, of the second of the points this evening. What is that second point? It is just the opposite of one of those statements that quite frequently you and I may be apt to hear. Have you ever heard someone say that the Bible and politics do not mix? That is to say, never the twain ought to meet. There is a regime and a realm in which the Bible reigns supreme, and there's a regime and a realm in which politics reigns supreme, and never should one impact or influence the other. There's only one problem with that. It is the case, of course, that the Bible does not endorse such a viewpoint. Consider the following conclusions with me, if you would. Is it not the case that for the Christian, the Holy Word of God permeates and gives direction to every aspect in the life of that Christian? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, to quote Psalm 1914. Or the closing two verses of Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 119, verse 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119, verses 15 and 16, in which the psalmist there declared, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. In all of these passages, the psalmist has decreed that in every aspect of life, including his thoughts, the desire is for them to be governed and ruled and directed by the very decrees of heaven. Certainly, if it's the case that all the aspects of life are governed thereby, that should naturally mean the decisions that we would make in a political way. Those of whom we support, those for whom we should vote, those circumstances and positions that we should feel comfortable in supporting. In fact, in Matthew 6.33, our Savior Himself in the Sermon on the Mount declared, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. As we seek first the nature of God and His will, does that extend beyond just myself personally? Does it have implications for my family, for my nation, for my community? Well, certainly it does. In every aspect of our life, we desire, of course, to uphold the plan and power of God's will. For, in fact, the Lord's Prayer, as it's sometimes called in Matthew 6, is that very idea. Did not Jesus pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? We can then say 
that politics and religion do mix in the sense that the decrees of God through His Word should have a bearing upon the perspective and on positions that we would feel comfortable in supporting. Maybe we can note at the very bottom of that screen that in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul even writing to that congregation in Corinth, which was again a city known for its licentiousness, known for its iniquity, known for its ungodliness, and yet to them he nonetheless could say, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And he concluded it by saying, in verse number 5, bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. Every thought that I and you may have are thus governed by the character of obedience to the gospel of Christ Jesus. It thus might be fairly summarized by saying that in the same way a person could not hope to be approved in the sight of heaven by approving that which is evil, can we expect a nation would be any different? Could we expect that a nation that uniformly supported that which God condemned, that God would approve and enjoy a great blessing pronounced upon that nation? That doesn't seem to make much sense. And according to the Scriptures, as we shall shortly see, it is not supported there either. For is it not true that righteousness exalts, that is, lifts up a nation, but iniquity, sin, is a reproach to any people? Thus, we should uniformly, as a nation, which of course starts individually, to note that our encouragement should be righteousness, for that's what God supports. That's what He encourages, and that's what leads to a greater amount of His blessings upon that people. This second point raises us to our third one. As we contemplate what righteousness is, we notice that God seems uniformly in favor of it. Might we now more clearly concentrate on that thought? There is an objective moral truth. When you and I discuss matters of morality, we all understand that we live in a world that is pluralistic. That is, most individuals have the view that I live my way, you live yours, you don't judge me, and we'll all be fine. Again, there's only one difficulty with that. The Bible doesn't endorse that viewpoint. In fact, there are certain actions and certain ways of life that are absolutely wrong, independent of who supports it on earth and how many are in support of it. In fact, have we not found that in the days of the both Old and New Testament? There is a truth, and it does not depend on how many on earth are supporting it. It is God's absolute character of truth. Notice some of the statements in the Scriptures that identify that thought. Jesus, speaking in John chapter 8, made this comment. His audience on that occasion was a multitude of Jews. And to them he said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Later on in John 18, Pilate, that Roman governor before whom Jesus appeared, asked, What is truth? Might we remember that in John 17, the Lord said, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Thus, the Lord proclaimed the fact that the Word of God is truth. Now, does that have a moral standard contained within it? Absolutely. How can we know that? How can we be sure that this is not some arbitrary abstract truth, but rather is a clear, ethical, moral system of truth contained in the gospel? We know that because the acts that are often decreed as being immoral are mentioned in this very same gospel.
perhaps no better example could be listed than the one in 1 Corinthians 6. Might I invite your attention to that text as we read it together. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. We've often noted also that the church in Corinth was started under difficult situations, rather difficult circumstances, and in that situation, those individuals who were members of that body had come to find themselves so strongly opposed and persecuted. But to them, Paul said this, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Upon pausing briefly, we notice that Paul has listed a fairly large number of types of behavior. If we start there, we notice... First, he said, fornicators, a clear reference to a sexual kind of lifestyle. We each again know that we live in an age and a time when a person's sexual preference is viewed to be a personal choice and nobody has the right to say anything against it. God said something against it. Didn't matter what those in Corinth thought. Paul said, you are unrighteous when you lived as a fornicator. You lived unrighteously when you lived as an adulterer. You lived unrighteously when you lived in homosexuality. You were unrighteous, you lived immorally, and what's more, you would not have inherited the kingdom of God in that state. But blessedly, note verse 11, and such were some of you, the beautiful past tense verb were, clearly implying that they had repented. They had made changes. They had come back into full fellowship with the gospel of God. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't it interesting that that stands so opposed to the typical viewpoint that you and I must face? This viewpoint that I can make the choices about right and wrong for myself. God said through Paul, I'll make that choice for you. There is right and there is wrong, and you, that choice has not been left to you, nor has it been left to me. We are not at liberty, regardless of the circumstance, to claim that fornication is right. No one is at liberty, regardless of the circumstance, to claim that adultery is right. No one, regardless of the country or age or circumstance, is at liberty to proclaim that homosexuality is not immoral. The Word of God says that it is. Furthermore, isn't it interesting that when those conclusions were thus stated by the Apostle Paul, that in the second Corinthian letter, chapter 7, verses 9 and following, that congregation was again highly commended for the repentance and the change of state of impression that they had made. Might we notice that so far our three points of our lesson have reminded us that in terms of political party, God is not a political party. And we've also learned the character of the fact that politics and the Bible do mix. And now thirdly, the character related to there is an objective moral truth. Might we now consider a fourth point, building on the three, that takes us perhaps one step further. The nature of political issues. In what way do we then make a proper choice about an individual for whom we would feel comfortable in supporting. 
might we be quick to say that, of course, our desire is to base that choice and decision upon a fair consideration of those issues that that person supports and that would necessarily he or she would support if he or she were elected. The whole idea behind a republic is that individuals vote and elect into office those who share their views and who would thus make the decisions that they themselves would make if they had the opportunity to do so. Let us begin by noting that every political issue has some importance to somebody. And isn't it interesting, it seems with each passing four years, there are more things that are listed as pertinent political issues. Maybe one could list a good six or eight major ones, but there are dozens of political issues. And we want to know how the candidates stand on these things. As one looks carefully into the character of those political issues, I've chosen to list just a very, very few. How does he or she stand on taxes? Will he or she support an increase or decrease in taxes? What about this Iraq war in which we are currently involved? How does this person stand on the subject of abortion or perhaps homosexuality and the defense thereof? How does this person stand on relations with, say, carrying out research in the Antarctic? Or what about relations with Mexico, as perhaps begun some 12 years ago? Any of those could be listed, and no doubt dozens of others. We might question, though, and notice as we consider that not all political issues, according to the Scriptures, are of equal weight. Some issues are more vital. They are higher in priority and stand at a higher level in terms of significance than others. Now, how do we appreciate that fact? Maybe one Old Testament example stands more clearly than any others to help us appreciate that point. It is the reign of King Omri in the Old Testament. If you wish to consider that with me, it's found in the 16th chapter of 1 Kings. If we turn back the clock to that ancient day and time, we find, of course, some interesting things. Omri came to the throne in a rather unusual way. He was the sixth of the kings of Israel. As he came to the throne, he in part was able to accomplish that by the assassination of, or the taking care of, maybe I should say, of his archenemy. As he came to the throne, Omri was a very adept leader. In fact, I've listed a few of the things that he was able to accomplish. The scriptures use the word might to describe him. And historically, we know by virtue of the person who was king after him that he accomplished many things in an economic way that benefited the kingdom of Israel. In fact, he made alliances with various surrounding nations. He was able to bring large amounts of money into the economy. He was able to uphold and enforce many things militarily. In fact, militarily, in the days of Omri, Israel was strong. He was able to vanquish or conquer various territories and enemies. But despite all of that, which might well be enough to make us think he was a great king, he was a wonderful leader, there's only one problem. Beginning in verse number 25 of 1 Kings 16, how does God describe him? In what way does this man live in infamy concerning the nature of his kingship? The scripture says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is to say, regardless of his military policies, regardless of the policies concerning the nature of his economic matters, 
This man will forever live in infamy as one who did not encourage spirituality in the reign of Israel. And for that, he died in infamy and still his memory lives that same way. Isn't it amazing that this very one not only influenced Israel during his reign, but consider that his son became king after him. And his son was named Ahab, the very one that married Jezebel. For, for decades following his reign, Israel was in a very sad and, and pathetic state. No doubt partly by that influence that lived on from the days of Omri forward. We might pause at least briefly to say that amongst the kings of Israel, there were 19 of them in all. Every one of them was wicked. Not a one of them does the Bible describe as being godly. Not a one of them does the Bible describe as being interested in encouraging spirituality. What might we learn then reasonably about Omri? He reigned 12 years. As we've stated, accomplished many things that might have benefited physically, but the Bible describes on two occasions the fact that the Lord was against him, for he worked evil in the sight of God. Maybe that's a lesson for us to consider what policies, what issues perhaps stand higher. Should one consider on an equal footing whether or not we should fund research in Antarctica versus the character of, say, abortion? Do those stand on equal footing? It would appear not. For one of them has souls at stake. One of them has circumstances and matters that impact directly the current welfare of righteousness in a nation, whereas the other one doesn't seem to impact it nearly so. Could we also maybe make one final thought? On another occasion, this was not during the days of Omri. It was about 200 years later. On this occasion, the prophet Isaiah was working feverishly. Again, the days of Israel were difficultly ahead. What is it that was stated in Isaiah 5? This was the text from which we read a few moments ago this evening. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That's the way in which he starts. During this time frame in the history of Israel, those that were in positions of leadership and those that were in positions to impact the behavior of others were sufficiently mixed that they would actually call that which was evil a good thing, but that which was in fact a good thing, they abandoned and called it an evil thing. Two other ways that's described. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Notice that that which should be palatable to the taste and encouraged in a good way, they say that it was a bitter thing and should, of course, not be adopted. Finally, he said they've put darkness for light and light for darkness. They have muddied the water and clouded the pristine picture of brightness that the Scriptures have revealed, but they've made it dark. In the next verse, that woe was pronounced in the same way to those who in fact have their eyes sufficiently beclouded by that which has taken place. Notice that are we ever in a position in a time to understand that sometimes that which is itself evil is called a good thing, and that which is in fact a good thing is described as evil? Men will seemingly sometimes do almost anything to get a vote. They will in fact preach that which is opposed to what they know is good and right. We should be awfully careful to make sure that those whom we support are not calling something that's evil a good thing. 
but rather we should appreciate that they ought to honestly come to an understanding of the godliness and righteousness which the Lord has himself supported and that is found in his holy word. One other text I've listed at the bottom of that screen is a challenge to you and me still today for it's found in the Roman letter. In the closing verses of Romans chapter 1, we have one other listing of various behaviors that Paul there describes. And in verse 32 of that chapter, Paul makes a monumental utterance when he says that there were certain things of which a person is worthy of death. These various sins that he's listed, those who commit such things are worthy of death. But Paul didn't conclude the verse there. He went on to say, not only those that have committed them, but those that support them in doing it. We must then be very careful about those whom we are willing to support in terms of are they calling something that's evil a good thing and endorsing this which God calls abomination? It would be a serious matter to stand before God and to give an account for supporting those who would sufficiently behave themselves in that way. At the bottom of that screen, might we at least give passing consideration to the slaughtering of babies Nowhere in this land would anyone endorse a person who was willing to put to death a one- or a two-year-old baby. But yet, by the hundreds of thousands, we do it. They just happen not to be born yet. There are political candidates that not only consider that to be not an immoral thing, they actually will defend its right at all cost. Interesting, isn't it? In Isaiah 49.1, Jeremiah 1, verse 5, as well as Psalm 139, all of them condemn this practice. What about homosexuality? These so-called alternate types of lifestyle. When in fact it's not alternate, there is no other lifestyles other than the one that God endorses. And yet there are those who not only do not consider such immoral, they will defend at all costs, even by altering our Constitution, to defend these kinds of things. Righteousness exalteth a nation, seen as of approach to any people. We should be careful, very careful, to think interestingly, is this a case where something that we know is evil is being called good? Are these two instances in which something that the scriptures call evil and abomination, but men call good? That can happen. Those two maybe lead us to one final listing this afternoon. Christian obligation. In our discussion of these, we are encouraged and also highly admonished to pray for our leaders. And we do that here often in our public prayers as we utter a prayer that they might use the scriptures to make those decisions that would be in the best interest of promoting godliness, the very way in which Paul stated that is, of course, in the following words, that supplications, intercessions, prayers, and giving of thanks might be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. If our prayer is thus to be designed such that godliness will be encouraged and promoted, we should thus strive to put into office those men and women who would be more apt for the case of promoting godliness. Maybe that goes to lead us easily to see that when righteousness exalts a nation, should we not encourage or find out about the stances concerning righteousness of those who are desiring our vote? 
one of the things that's true about the day in which we live, we strive to learn about the stances or positions of the candidates on various matters. And as we study them, may we make our decisions in light of what the Word of God has declared, especially when we notice the following. There were times that political leaders in the Scriptures were directly opposed by God's people. I thought that an interesting point for the following reason. Sometimes you and I are encouraged to, in fact, almost support nearly anyone. But that wasn't true of God's people. In fact, in Amos chapter 7, that noble prophet Amos, who in fact came out of the territory, who himself was a farmer, if you will, had the courage and boldness to directly oppose King Jeroboam because Jeroboam endorsed that which was not in accordance to the Word of God. And in that failure to endorse him, Jeroboam and his court became exceedingly angry at Jeroboam. Did that change Jeroboam's, did that change Amos's perspective? Not in the slightest. To paraphrase what they told Amos, don't you prophesy here. You go and prophesy wherever you want, but we don't want to hear it. Amos said, the Lord has spoken, and when he has spoken, I must roar. Sounds much like Micaiah's affirmation, doesn't it, in 1 Kings twenty-two fourteen, What the Lord saith, that will I speak. Notice also, Nathan, that prophet in the days of David, had the boldness and courage to oppose David, even when David was in sin. When David had committed Bathsheba, it was Nathan who appeared before him and said, You are the man. Nathan did not beat around the bush. He simply made it known to David, you are guilty of doing that which God does not approve. Might we notice that that came out in a very good way, at least in one sense. David repented of that which he had done. He fell prostrate before Nathan and said, what can I do to obtain favor again of God? And the 51st Psalm is an eternal testimony to David's penitent heart. Perhaps a third example. In Mark chapter 6, we read about a leader in the days of the Roman Empire. He happened to be a leader in the Palestinian region, but this leader himself was guilty of an immoral kind of lifestyle. He was living with another man's woman. And John the Baptist had the courage to straightforwardly tell him it's not lawful for you to have her. We remember that John's head was cut off for that. The leader's name was Herod. We notice, though, in all those instances that these individuals had the courage to, in fact, oppose that which was evil and to support that which they knew to be noble and to be right and to be godly. It could be easy then to see that concerning the latter statement on that screen, there was a time in the Old Testament era when a very powerful question was asked. Found in Second Chronicles 19.2, I've listed the individuals involved. Jehu the prophet asked it, and the person of whom he asked it was King Jehoshaphat. There's a rather lengthy story behind what led up to the question, but it involved the fact that Jehoshaphat had entered into an alliance with a wicked ruler, a person who had no appreciation for the things of God. And when Jehoshaphat found himself in that position, Jehu challenged him. Why have you showed support and given fellowship to one who is wicked? Maybe that's a fair question that we can ask of ourselves from time to time as well. Not only in a political way, but in all the aspects of our life. 
Do we lift up the hands and support those who themselves are involved in immorality and wickedness and not try to challenge them on the nature of their error? The things that we've seen in terms of our five points this evening might well be summarized in this way. We have an opportunity in our land to elect those officials who will lead us. There are countries for which that opportunity is not given. Their leaders are appointed or they attain that office by inheritance. We at least are blessed with the opportunity to choose those that will lead us. We've seen this evening in terms of some important points. In terms of political parties, God does not uniformly endorse one to the exclusion of the others, for the Bible is not a political textbook. What's more, we've learned also the interesting scene, in fact, that the Bible and politics do mix. We, as Christians, should allow the precepts of Scripture to help us make those decisions about to elect those that would be most appropriate to lead our nation in the way of godliness, because there is an objective moral truth. There is a standard of right and wrong, and that has not been left to you and me. In the fourth place, we notice that some political issues carry more weight in a spiritual way than others. And finally, we noted that we as Christians do have an obligation to make our choices in a wise way. And might it be that the words of Hosea in Hosea 14.9 would be a fair way to conclude our lesson tonight. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things, prudent, and he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk therein, but the fool shall fall therein. Might we note the blessing that's ours as we contemplate the decision that we shall make in this year as far as a leader of our land, as well as not just the president, but others. May we make that decision wisely, and may we make that decision in a way most in harmony with the revelation of the will of God. It might be this evening that there's one or more within the sound of my voice that's not a member of the body of Christ, that precious body for which Christ died. We understand the great blessing that we have to be in that, and if that be true, dear friend, do you not want to be a Christian, be a part of that saved organization? If we could help you in becoming that member tonight, might we know that it's not of human design, it is of the Lord's design. We must hear His Word, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of our sins, confess His great name, and, of course, be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could be of assistance in the accomplishment of that, what a great joy it would be for us and an eternal one for you. And what's more, if you have become a Christian, but you have not lived in a way that has brought glory and honor to God, maybe you've brought reproach upon yourself, upon the church. Perhaps others have been encouraged to be unfaithful by your example. Come back to that first love tonight. Endorse and support those things that are in the realm of godliness. If we could be of assistance tonight in any way concerning a public response to the gospel, we'd be happy and honored to do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.